Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine with Diana. Rushova, yeah. Rushova, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Whom I uh, already talked to last year, actually, when I was writing my bachelor on the war in Ukraine. So we got to know each other already back in April last year, where we uh, talked. That was as a part of my assignment. So it was more of an interview. This time it will be more of a conversation, which the listeners will know. But anyways, I think I'll just uh, give the word to you to uh, yeah present yourself so that um, everyone will know who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Diana and I am a Ukrainian who is actually not an expert in a history or politics but I'm a person who is very interested in it and this conversation is going to be like more about my perception and about perception of people who I know who are also from Ukraine. Mm, sure and it's also important um, to this point for me to emphasize that for me it's also important to talk with regular Ukrainians so to say, to get their story out there and to get to know what they're thinking about and what their perspectives are, because in the end, that is also pretty important for yeah, the political development of Ukraine and also um, towards the decisions that the government right now is taking, because that is how politics works in democratic countries such as Ukraine. But as I wrote to you before, Here in the beginning, I would like to do uh, first things first. And obviously, just yesterday, this is uh, Thursday, the 24th of August. And last night, Wednesday, the 23rd of August, it was kind of confirmed that Jevgeny Prigozhin was killed in a plane crash when he was um supposed to take a plane from Senate, uh, no, not Senate, just P St. Petersburg, Senate, that's the football club, uh, but from, uh, yeah, from St. Petersburg to Moscow, Moscow. And now he's dead. At least that is what um, most experts agree um, has happened. Some people say there is a small chance that he is uh, still alive and that it was some kind of uh, yeah, decoy or something, which I don't believe because I think that the images and the stories and the background for this assassination is pretty evident towards the fact that he is dead. Um, so first of all, can I just hear you, um, Diana? What do you think about the, um, the death of Prigozhin? Yeah, first of all, what I wanted to say is that it's very important for us Ukrainians to be heard on such kind of topics, both about historical and the political, about what is going on right now. And yeah, the situation with Prigozhin, you saw that it was impossible for me to uh, hold my smile, because like that's just one of the evidences that karma is working. But still, I don't think that it will change something um, radically in uh, the way in which war is going on right now. Uh, I believe that it won't even affect it. Like, yes, we can uh, be happy about it. <laughs> That's this kind of time when you're happy about someone's death. Unfortunately, we are going through it. Uh, 
but it is what it is. Um, I'm happy that at least like two people who were uh, highly involved in uh, killing Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian civilians and army were killed as well. <laughs> um, I feel strange about being happy about someone's death, but... And yeah, I, I don't think it's gonna change anything. So even if Prigozhin is still alive, events will just keep going in the same path as they should have been. It's just some kind of a good news, which could not be true, but we are all hoping it's true. Because nothing which... Anything what involves Russia in news can always be faked, even if it's about death of someone... Like, we, it was also hard to believe that one of the, what is his name, Zhirinovsky, he was one of the uh, Russian politics, so they were faking him alive for uh, several months, so he basically died, like, several months before they announced it, and first they were saying that, no, he didn't die, but then <laughs> uh, we uh, saw the truth coming, so... That's it. Mm, yeah, so <clears throat> you you feel overall uh, <clears throat> glad that precaution is uh, yeah doesn't exist anymore, so to say, because of all the things that he has also inflicted upon Ukrainians, and that of course makes sense. But your uh, attitude is also sort of that <clears throat> the war will still continue as it already uh, is doing, and that the death of precaution won't affect that too much. And are you then suggesting that it's because when I follow yeah, media and so on, I think that we uh, tend to overreact a little bit to some news and that we then put too much focus into such uh, subjects as the that of precaution for example and i just completely agree with you that even though he is dead it shouldn't be anything that derails the decision process of the west in terms of military support to uh, ukraine with that said although i think that one as an observer should be um, taking notice to what is now going to happen in Russia, because he was a popular figure. He was someone with authority as well, at least in his um, own right, you can say. And he did launch an, yeah, an attempted coup against Kremlin. That's why he is now dead. I think that's pretty self-evident for people who's following. So, so it will be interesting, at least for me, to see what kind of repercussions this will have within Russia. But now it's Thursday, so yeah, his death happened yesterday, and some people were already, like also on Twitter, and also some Ukrainians wrote to me that now maybe um, things will start to happen in Russia, like not uh, civil war conditions, but but that something could happen along these lines. But at least for now, um, my personal evaluation of the situation is that nothing has really happened to suggest that that will happen 
as of now. So so it's Thursday now, so it's one day ago. And and I think we should have seen already like um insurgencies or stuff like that happening today. But but it's still an important thing at least to um to keep your um your eye on. So what what is your um do you think that this can uh, in in any way lead to um yeah I guess I guess you can say problems for the Putin regime do you think that like protests can start happening or or is it the same old story with um yeah with the current um political situation in Russia that he's just dead now and then the then the regime will sort of um make sure to create a situation in which none of that will will happen what's your take on that Yeah, so basically um we've already seen what the rebellion uh, of Prigozhin made to Kremlin, which is basically nothing. They didn't even finish it. And um I was not even happy when uh, those news were coming up about the possible uh, civil war in Russia because I was understanding that it's either some um, hidden games that they are playing or uh, it's either something we, that won't work. Because <sighs> the I believe that the political system in Russia is pretty tensed and... Um, politicians there and people there they just will not allow the change of a regime because they feel comfortable there uh, even though this comfort is not like the best way of living um, they just get used to it so yeah and the decoy uh, that was going on uh, changed nothing and the death of Prigozhin will not change anything as well I um, I believe that it was uh, homicide uh, from uh, the uh, from Russian side because uh, they saw that Prigozhin could become a powerful political figure which could uh stay again against Putin but still even though it could have happened that he took the uh, that he could take the um post of the president after Putin then for Ukraine it's nothing because still this person made his rebellion this decoy just because they were not killing Ukrainians as efficient as they wanted to Because of the corruption and um, the problems in the uh, political system in Russia. So, I don't think that it will change anything. Like, for example, going back to the days when, um, uh, in 2010 year, uh, Russia had that uh, revolution on uh, Basena. Uh, it seems to me that it was named like that after the street in uh, St. Petersburg. And uh, um, before these events, um, one of the biggest um, 
oh my god, uh, like one of the biggest political figures from opposition, uh, Boris Nemtsov, uh, was killed. Uh, for sure, it was. Uh, it happened after uh, the decision of Putin. So, and we have seen that nothing has changed in Russia, and. Uh, the situation there was pretty much the same as now because they were in war still with other countries at that time. Like during the times when uh, Boris Nemtsov was in opposition, they had a war in Georgia. So I don't think that Russians care and that they will go on a revolution after what happened. Yeah, so so I guess one can say, one can say that what you're... Uh getting at is the fact that although Prigozhin led this coup attempt towards the Kremlin regime around two months ago, the fact that he did that does not change the fact that his position on Ukraine would still not have been better than the one of Putin. So it is this sort of... um, for me and for the all Ukrainians, I think there is this uh, sort of um, apathy, I guess you can say, towards what we can expect from the development in Russia. And and I also remember that before the war started, and also in the initial weeks of not before the war started, before the full scale invasion was launched last year, and in the initial weeks after the full-scale invasion, I think I had uh, a hope that something could occur in Russia would, would, which would lead to the yeah, the topple of the regime in favor of a regime that would not, um, yeah, that wouldn't be positive towards the, the war in Ukraine. But first of all, nothing happened. Like there were very small protests in the beginning they were cracked down upon pretty roughly and Russia then changed their laws so that you could get into prison for 15 years just to go out and yeah, speak your mind about this stuff. And then it just seemed seemed as if it were pretty much yeah, taking control of after there and we didn't really see anything from the Russians. And then the next thing that happened which was a an actual threat, I would say, towards the Russian regime was the uprising that, yeah, that Prigozhin and Wagner tried to uh, commit against the regime, but but the problem there just becomes that what would that um, make for the what kind of situation would that make for the Ukrainians and and I guess also for uh, the West actually as. Um, as abroad and and it's just such an um well it, it's for me it's complex and pretty simple at the same time so so the complexity is that i think what we would um as observers maybe tend to think is that if an uprising were to happen in russia we would think that then it would be some sort of liberal or democratic uprising that would be in favor of a democratic regime maybe not it doesn't even have to be like a tr- 
truly democratic regime that they were favoring, just just a regime that would be more friendly towards the West and would want to stop the war in Ukraine. But it just seems as if uh, these forces uh, are just not there in Russia right now because the political situation is so... It's it's actually difficult. That's where and that's uh, yeah. That's the complexity. It's so uh, difficult uh, for me to um, analyze exactly the political situation in Russia. But whatever it might be, it it is just um, in a way so that even threats against uh, Putin's regime, like the biggest threats against Putin's regime right now in Russia, doesn't seem to be threats that would actually work in favor of. Ukraine, um, because um, it, is, it just seems as if it is all these um, very, very right wing kind of people that um, that is mentioned whenever somebody is talking about who might take over from Putin, at least as of now. Um, I think you could throw in one perspective, which is that at least um, the uprising against the Putin regime was something that has created more uncertainty uncertainty about the power of of Putin, um, which I think is good for Ukraine because that weakens the political regime that is trying to commit this mass murder in Ukraine. But but it is still not, uh, how can you say it, like, it's just still not um, something that does it, you know, for uh, for me or for the the Ukrainians to see that, even the threats against the Putin regime is also pretty, um, yeah, like they are also want to commit the war in Ukraine and they also want to, um, yeah, make Ukraine, uh, come under Russian control. So, and it just seems as if it, that it is so, um, how can you say dangerous right now to speak out against that position so that nobody will do it. And it also seems as if the Russians, they just don't have the courage to do it. And they don't have the, this is going to be sound pretty, um, critical, but it also is to me. It's also seems as if the Russians, like they, they're not, ju- they are just not intelligent enough right now to see that for them, it would actually make much more sense to have a regime that were more friendly towards the West and wanted to stop the war in, in Ukraine. It just seems that they are in some sort of, uh, yeah, trance right now, I guess you could say. Um, so. Yeah, so so overall, I also think that um, that this is just um, one more case of of things happening in Russia that we shouldn't pay. Well, I mean, we should pay attention to it because it does say something about the situation in Russia. But but we shouldn't have have it as a subject that we take into consideration before taking decisions upon what we would like to do in order to help Ukraine. We should just keep on helping Ukraine as we are. We should not just keep on, we should escalate our help. That's my position. Um, but we should keep on helping Ukraine as if nothing has happened in Russia. Does that make sense to you? So that like we should just continue the support that we are already committing. I mean, we should escalate it in my opinion, but we shouldn't take the death of Prigozhin as something uh, to evaluate, evaluate before taking decisions. Um, because I also think that what ultimately uh, led to all this with Prigozhin was the support that we in the West are giving um, 
Ukraine because that was also what um, has helped Ukraine to create a situation in in Ukraine in which all these things are happening in in Russia. So yeah, so I think overall for me it's also a sign of um, the fact that the power of Putin is weakening in Russia, but the fact that it is precaution um, that is chilling was challenging him just also shows to me how far away the yeah the situation in Russia is from being anything that is acceptable to Ukraine and to anyone who cares about international norms and yeah the international law and and such stuff. Right, do do you have some things yeah, you want to say here in the end about this uh, precaution? Yeah. Yes, for sure. So actually make notes about what you were saying. Uh, and um, first of all Uh, starting from the ending of your speech, uh, I want to one more time thank to all of the Europeans who actually, and for all of the uh, to all of the people uh, of our planet to, for supporting Ukraine, for helping because, like, yes, we are pretty um, courageable, or we have a courage to defend uh, uh, defend our country. But still, without the help that we are getting from our international partners, it could have been much, 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 much more hard. And uh, we do really need the ammunition which has been sent to us, the weapons, and etc., etc. And that's a good thing to uh, support Ukraine now, because looking back at the at the at our experience in 20th century when uh Germany uh, invaded Poland for about hmm, for about two years before uh USSR started to um also actively taking part in a war but against Germany um Germans were not against what is going on there And uh, before the war, I was, like, before the escalation of the conflict, I was reading The Night in Lisbon, which clearly showed me that the war will start. Because people there, uh, it was, uh, the novel is from the side of uh, the German uh, guy who is uh, against war. He's anti-militarist. But... All the things they were thinking about and all the things they were talking about were just the same as ours back in uh, February and January 2020. And uh, that showed me that the war actually will come. That no one will do anything to stop it from escalating. And we are not changing as humanity like we are still keep doing the same mistakes as we used to and because uh the league of nations which was created after the first world war didn't support it actually poland in uh, fighting against uh germany that's what happened next because germany felt uh, felt that they can they can invade anyone and others just gonna stay there and waiting until it comes to them That's the first thing that I wanted to say. Then the other one about the Putin's regime. The important thing that feels to be missed by people who are not actually in Ukraine is that 
this war don't have Putin's face actually. It has just a Russian face because even if Putin is dead, I don't think it will be over because basically what he's doing, he's just a politician and what he's doing is just what the people in his country want him to do. Even though they are not telling it, uh, not saying it directly, but Russia still has this imperialistic type of uh, political system because basically it's still an Im empire which has a lot of nationalities, uh, a lot of other countries which were <laughs> swallowed by it in the uh, 20th century, 19th, 18th. And they do need wars to keep existing because there are too many different nationalities who even have like their like, different languages. And the only way to keep them together is to have the one identified enemy, identified nemesis who they're gonna fight. And of course, they have to add themselves new territories every time. So I don't think that death of Putin or if Prigozhin could have took his place could have changed anything. Because like if Prigozhin could have become uh, now I have to tell it, to say it in a past tense because <laughs> likely it's not it's not possible right now. But if he could have become the president of Russia, uh, Russian Federation, then I believe that his actions they could have lead to actually making things worse in Ukraine uh, because because he won't uh, won't have had <laughs> wouldn't have had allowed uh, the corruption in the military sector which is pretty active right now and yeah, I'm just thinking that their uh, mentality is just still too pretty imperialistic. That's like the biggest empire that we can see right now, which is now existing uh, still. And I believe that this kind of mm, government, I don't know, like governmental system shouldn't really exist in democratic world we are trying to build right now. So the only way, like... Even if people in Russia will choose the new president, I don't think that things will change. And yes, we could have, we could sign up this uh, document about peace, but then they're gonna come back in like ten or twenty years, and our kids will have to defend our country again, just because Russia is keep existing, just because that's what they've been doing all the time. Look at Georgia, at Chechnya, at. Uh, uh, Armenia and uh, no, they have this Transnistria. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically what I wanted to say. Uh, commenting uh, your speech before. Yeah, sure. And what you are talking about there. Uh, soon we will be talking a bit about the Ukraine Ukrainian history. Um, but just to wrap up what you were saying. I think what you are describing is um, <clears throat> this sort of um, vicious cycle, I guess you can call it like that, wherein that um, so the whoever has the political power in Russia 
will always be someone who is representing the Russians as the yeah the, the Russian ethnic group and for some reason they they just seem to no matter what went before they just seem to always um come back to this um notion that they apparently have to incorporate more territories within their power so and that this is something that is shown all throughout history um but we, if we just talk about the the period here after the cold war ended in 1991. I think that's also, uh, because this is also the National Independence Day of uh, Ukraine today. So, yeah, I think we should uh, mention that as well. And congratulations to Ukraine, of course. Thank you so much. Um, but, yeah, um, but, but what happened after, so in 1991, when the USSR uh, dissolved, Three uh, nations, uh, there, more nations came uh, after it, but in 1991, basically, um, yeah, like the three pillars, I guess you could say, of the USSR, of course, uh, the Russian Socialistic uh, Federation was um, the main one, the one that um, kept everybody else in check and suppressed them. Also the Ukrainians, there's no reason about that. But um, for the USSR as a whole, like um, the Russian Socialist Federation and the Belarusian Socialist Federation and the Russian Federation was like the the most important of these federations. And in 1991, um, these three countries made a decision that the Soviet Union was no more and that all these countries would then be independent. And of course, this meant, this meant and this is at least how I see it, um, this meant that Russia was the clear loser of the Cold War because they lost all the territory that they were keeping within their power by suppressive means. And um, and then, uh, yeah, after that, they were in a pretty weak position, Russia, and they had uh, Boris Yeltsin as a president who was um, someone who were way more friendly at least in his uh, rhetorics towards the West. And actually he invited a lot of um, Westerners to come into Russia and to set up businesses and to do deals and so on. But so, so we had a period there um, during his presidency where I actually think that the feeling within the West were that now Russia was someone that we could cooperate with. But even in that period, like straight off the get-go, after Russia was formed as an independent nation, they invaded Transnistria in Moldova. So that just um, speaks a volume to the fact that the Russians are not someone who were never imperialistic. They always were, and they were even at the um, yeah, even when they were the most uh, weak, they still committed um, yeah unjustful wars. In um, in other countries and in other territories, and they and they did that all the way up through the nineties. They also did it with the uh, Chechen wars, and then we saw it, of course, as well with the with the war in Georgia and so on. So it's just yeah, even even after they lost the Cold War and Russia got weakened a lot, they still kept um they still kept embarking on these um. Yeah, uh, how can you say it? Like endeavors to to gain more territory, 
Um, so, so they have just always done that. And even when we have thought that they were not in a position to do so, either, um, how can I say, when we have thought that they were not strategically or morally in a position to do so, they have still done it. Um, so that's just an important thing to take notice of also going into the, into the future. But, but yeah, I think this will also be a pretty clear pattern pattern um, when we talk about the history of Ukraine, which we will start talking about now, because first of all, history is very, very important. Important. I think that is, um, that is pretty uh, evident when you see how autocratic leaders always use history um, in a manipulative way to their uh, advantage. Um, but I think you should just, um, because as you said, you are not an expert. I'm not an expert either, but both of us are very interested in history and especially Ukrainian history. So I think you should just start from yeah, wherever you want to start uh, regarding Ukrainian history. And I look forward to hear what you have to say. Okay, thank you so much. Um, yeah, actually, we've started to talk about uh, year 1991 when uh, Ukraine uh, got its independence, uh, which I think is a pretty good topic to touch today. Because uh, I've been, uh, I've been uh, reading a lot of literature uh, on this one uh, during the past year, which we were not talking. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, good. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, of course, when um, Ukraine got independent from Russia, uh, that was the uh, period which we usually call the... Um, um, like, it's all... So, uh, so the political system uh, in USSR got weakened because of the basically losing the Cold War and uh, the economical state was just uh, as bad as it could. And uh, Russia that days were in a pretty weak position. So when they were letting Ukraine and Belarus go, they were thinking that this decision will be temporary. Um, but I don't think that they expected from our politicians, from our people, this will to uh, exist without Russia. They, I don't think that they do expect it. Uh, the The level on which we do not want to be with them together again um, and um, we had a very uh, a group of uh, very good politicians who basically uh, did what is who were basically involved in a process which led us to celebrate our 32nd um, anniversary of independence, and among those people, there are people there were one uh, figure, uh, Chernovil. Uh, have you heard of him? No. Okay. Uh, so 
yes, uh, he was like one of the, um, uh, he was in opposition to the current uh, government, um, to the first president, uh, wasn't Kuchma, it was Chernovetsky, uh, Ukrainian president, yeah, Chernovetsky, uh, and Kuchma after them, after him. Um, and um, year 91 and the events which were happening after that showed that we will not get back to USSR, uh, even though they tried to um, influence our culture, uh, they are still trying to do so, especially with the Russian language. Uh, that's why I think it is important for every Ukrainian to switch to Ukrainian language, because otherwise we will not be influenced by Russian culture again. And that is highly important for us if we would like to save our independence. Yeah, and uh, going back to political events. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just uh, a lot of philosophical thoughts of mine, because I'm thinking about it like all the time. Um, and... Um, only now I started to understand the uh, the uh, real meaning of what was going on back there, like back in 30 years ago. Um, that's very curious how, even though there was a big, um, how do I say it? Just let me translate it. Um, uh, confrontation. Uh, from the uh, USSR politics on uh, existing of uh, Ukrainian cultural language at other. Uh, there were a lot of people who were ready to fight for the language, for the culture we now have. Uh, they were even ready to die for it. So I believe that this um, this day when we celebrate it, we should always remember all of these people who actually led us through years, through decades and through hundred years to our independence. Sorry, it's just so... I'm very emotional about it because I'm only thinking about all of our poets, our politicians, all of the activists who basically put their lives so we could live the life we are living right now and the war that is going on right now that's like the final war to which we were going through the centuries through the centuries of of oh my god i'm so sorry <laughs> um through the centuries do you want me to uh, to maybe talk a bit as well yes um because yes. i completely yes, yes. yeah because I can see that it is pretty uh, difficult. Um, but yeah, speaking to all of you guys, um, knowing Ukrainian history, it makes so much sense that you are getting emotional as well, because I know, first of all, how much it means for all Ukrainians, like in a collective sense, to, to gain their independence and to become free of Russia and to create the society and the country that I 100% uh, believe and what all Ukrainians have been talking to also believe that they w- would be able to if they were just to be set free from um, yeah, from the Russian sphere of influence once and for all. Um, 
so 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 I completely get what you are why you're getting so emotional and as you were saying this comes down to I would say yeah hundred hundreds of years of um, suppression of Ukraine not just of Ukraine as a as a nation as a nation but of Ukrainian identity and of uh, Ukrainians and and you were talking a lot here about the events in 1991 talking yeah right uh, from the like the independence day uh, talking about the activists and the the soldiers and and anyone who were willing back then to stand up for Ukrainian sovereignty and independence and and i think in in 1991 was even um if you look at it in a historical context was um was a year in which russia luckily was so weak that they in in that period they didn't really have any choices they couldn't really do anything about the yeah the national uprising in ukraine um so therefore actually that period um at least as as i uh, know it wasn't um there were probably some violence i i guess, I guess um but but there wasn't really any confrontation back then between ukraine and russia and um, ukraine just kind of um yeah was finally allowed to become an independent country without anybody threatening them And that is what they did. And yeah, just to stay um, on track, uh, talking about 1991, there were a referendum in Ukraine. Do you remember the exact dates of it? Okay, so it was on December 1st. Ah, okay, yeah, okay. So yeah, so then I will just uh, yeah talk. I will, I will just explain it a, a bit more. What I was because the so the the day of uh, national independence. Um, like today is before the referendum but what happened was that uh, Ukraine as a political nation i guess you can say were formed in this period uh 32 years ago and then um completely peacefully uh, this this process was completely uh, peaceful almost um of course it was very important that these ukrainians that you were talking about were there to say We want our independence now, and we're willing to fight for it if it comes to it, um, because that is the sort of things that um, is the fundament for nations to come out as independent nations um, when they were uh, formal, formally actually um, suppressed into a part of an, a larger empire. And 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 the thing is that then there was this referendum in December, as you're saying, and I believe um, that 91% of all Ukrainians voted to stay independent, to to be a, a part of the independent Ukraine and not to join uh, Russia or not to form their own republics because that was what people were asked about in 1991 in this referendum. It was basically, do you want to be a part of Ukraine or, or not? Um, and 99%, uh, 91% said that they wanted to be a part of Ukraine. And even in Crimea, where people have been talking uh, too much based upon the fake referendum in 2014 there were actually it was not as big but there was also a majority of the people in Crimea who wanted to be a part of Ukraine and that is even with all the Russians that during the USSR time and during the Russian Empire time was um yeah uh, moved to to Crimea and um which is basically also the problem of Crimea today and um, that there are so many I don't know the. I think you could say Russian settlers in in Crimea, 
Um, yeah, so so it's just to say that in 1991, Ukraine was very united uh, upon the wish to become an independent nation. Um, just just to finish off 1991, um, but I want to go a bit back in time as well, um, and then. Yeah, just to uh, the 300 years you were talking about um, and, and the fact that this is like the final war, this comes on, on the back of... Sorry to break into the conversation here, but after this, I'm talking about more than 300 years of Ukrainian history that are leading up to the next period I'm talking about, which is the period in Ukraine immediately after World War One, And... When I talk about it, it gets a bit too blurry sometimes because there are some dates that I don't remember exactly. So what I would like to do instead is to just cut in to where Diana is responding to what I was saying because I actually think I actually think that she sums up these things pretty well. So here we go. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I would like to add some comments of mine. Uh, yeah, first of all, like the um, the first events which led to for Ukraine to be invaded by Russia and by Poland is that it was weakened after the um, uh, Monholes came to Ukraine and basically like uh, um, won it. Uh, they uh, stole all of the. Uh, gold and all of the all of the money they uh killed a lot of people and uh it was the period of ruin in ukraine so that is the reason why uh other countries were able to actually invade it and to put their own uh, authorities there in the cities and um the talking about the beginning of 20th century actually like the whole europe like whole continent like whole continental Europe which also includes a part of Russia um, each country got weaker after the First World War and um, during the period of um, after the World War First, um, both Austrian Empire and Russian Empire got weaker which uh, gave Ukrainians um, some chance uh, that they could got an independence, and um, they were like, we had this Zuener, which is Zahidna Ukrainska Nacionalna Rada. I'm gonna translate it. Uh, it's um, Western Ukrainian uh, National uh, Committee, like Rada. Okay, so it's Ukrainian National Council of West Ukrainian People's Republic. Uh, we call it basically ZUNR, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna keep calling it because, like, um, and ZUNR is translates like West Ukrainian People's Republic. Uh, uh, oh my God, no, that's not true. West Ukrainian. No, National Country uh, Council. Okay. Western Ukrainian National Council, um, which was created in the western part of Ukraine. Um, and uh, they were uh, fighting to get independent from uh, Austrian Empire 
and we have to say that Austrian Empire was not that strict to Ukrainian culture and language as uh, Russian Empire was. So the um, the background for it was um, more promising. But at the same time, as you already mentioned it, in the spring of um, 1917, yeah, 1917, the, um, how, uh, the Central Rada, um, yeah, Ukrainian Central uh, Council, uh, which is named uh, UCR, uh, was also started. And um, they, um, as I know, they uh, were hoping that after after Bolsheviki came to, uh, oh my God, <laughs> um, after Bolsheviki came to power, uh, they will uh, uh, somehow support Ukraine and Ukrainian. Uh, workers uh, and people in villages to uh, live better life uh, they will support its independence but that's what never happened and basically Ukrainians were fighting for these uh, for their independence for all these years starting from the Mongolian crisis if I can call it like like that uh, and we were al- always looking for uh, uh, weakening of our invaders and uh, the biggest weakening that happened and which helped us to become the country we are uh, now it was in 1991 yes sorry to break into the conversation here again but when answering Diana's comment to what I first said I once again speak about the period in Ukraine after the first world war And there are just so many things happening in that period, so many political entities occurring. And I try to like cover all of them, but I just don't have the amount of time that I need to have to cover all these in a, in a correct way. And then also I forget the order a little bit and some of the names. So once again, I actually think it is better to just cut into when Diana is further explaining this period. And it's not like her uh, explanation does it uh, justice at all because so many things are happening. But but that is also why Diana and I talked about that it could maybe be interesting to do episodes that specifically focus on different parts of Ukrainian history. But anyway, here we go with Diana talking about the period in Ukraine after First World War, um, like just laying like the broad overview of what is happening. Yeah, I would uh, try to be briefly about it. Uh, so, um, during the whole period of uh, Ukraine being uh, dependent on Russia, um, Russian Empire, uh, there were like several political parties all the time. Uh, some of them were pro-Ukrainian, some of them were pro-Russian. Um, and that was the constant fight uh, between them. Uh, that's why we had like that was some kind of a chaos after the World War One uh, first, um, because uh, it basically led to creation of Zuener, Utser, um, 
Ukrainian People Republics, and then in 1919, uh, Ukrainian became a part of Ukraine uh, of uh, Soviet Union. So yeah, and luckily uh, during the time in 1991, there were just the main party and the opposition. So. I believe that that's also one of the reasons why we actually achieved the independence. It's because we um, we collaborated with each other uh, and um, we basically came out from the chaos to something more structured. Uh, people started to understand more about politics and uh, about the um, real... Um, importance of um, oh my god um, of getting together uh, even though not all of your uh, vision is uh, the same but at least that could be the way to get an independence and after you're gonna get an independence then we can have a lot of uh, collisions a lot of uh, different uh, visions on how we have to develop but first we needed to get what we will develop and that is i think the reason why we actually achieved it because at one point we just consolidated together okay so yeah so so what you're saying is that um, all these events after the first world war in uh, ukraine they although Ukraine didn't succeed back then in establishing an um, independent Ukraine because it ended up being a part of the yeah, the USSR. At least what that period this did was that it taught the Ukrainians that if you want to create an independent nation, you also have to be aware of what political agency is, meaning that you can have influence within your own country. And besides that, it learned them that If you want to use that political agency as effectively as possible, we have to stand together as a, as a people and as a nation. And and that was very important for what then happened in 1991. All right, sure. Uh, yeah, just to be uh, just to be clear, um, because it was also difficult to talk about this period, and may, maybe it was a bit more difficult than I uh, than I hoped it, it would be. But but I think I will. Um, After the conversation, I will uh, yeah, like listen to it and then um, just make sure that um, that we, we cut it the right way. But this was um, yeah speaking about uh, mainly like newer Ukrainian history, and I like that it got very uh, detailed as well because um, I think that's important. Because yeah, when you really dive into this period, you see that actually ukraine would have become an independent nation back then if the people of ukraine had got the wish wish that they wanted to fulfill but they just weren't able to back then because of their external uh, powers and um yeah that was it's just so important to um to be aware of the fact that it was in external powers and that it was not ukraine um so now i think we um we jump back to um today and that's a pretty long jump um but i also think that it makes sense to uh, to go from this period uh to today because there is of course some um, similarities but now i want to hear a bit about uh yeah what you're thinking about 
the wall right now because we have obviously just had um, the summer uh, and the Ukrainian counter, the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive, which started in like the middle of May, I think, like the the, the end of uh, this year's spring. So, so yeah. So, what is your um, take on it right now? Yeah. Okay. So we are making some kind of a catch up. Uh, comparing to what I was thinking in uh, April 22, and now it's August uh, 23rd. So I can feel the way in which we've changed as a nation because we became more united, even though we still have conflicts inside of it because, <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's just part of our nature. But um, now I'm not looking at it as optimistic as I used to because back then I it was hard for me to imagine that word could uh, could be going like for a year or more and now it's like one year and a half and um, like for sure it will go to the second year and maybe the third one of course of course we are all hoping that it will end up soon but now that's just a hope and there is like I'm, I'm just hoping that all of our territories which were occupied starting from 2014 will be deoccupied and people will have a chance to get back to their homes as well as I do because all of my family now that's like on occupied territory they are under occupation starting from the February 26th And I'm really hoping that it will end soon. I uh, like my uh, mental state and mental state of each of us is really exhausted of reading news about people dying every day. That is so hard. That's because we all now feel like a big family, you know. Uh, like we've never been such united as we are right now. And I'm proud that we are able to close the um, uh, big uh, donations uh, like um, like fundraisings that we were doing because like last summer we we bought a satellite just together Ukrainians fundraised money and we bought a satellite we bought a lot of ammunition we bought a lot of drones um, and It's a constant process. We just keep going. We um, learned a lot about what war is actually is. And I'm just hoping that this knowledge will help not only to us to prevent future wars, but also to the world, because that is the first war which is basically going on like online. You can see everything that is going on, and that's why it's even more traumatic than it used to be, than it used to be in 2014, for example. And I just want this war to be like the the war which will change all of us to understand that we, there in 21st century. Uh, and in the future, there should be another ways to solve political problems. People shouldn't die 
just to have a chance to live in a country where they want to live. And uh, yeah, um, hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Okay, uh, so, so should, um, are you, do you right now, you're not sure that, um, or let me, let me phrase it like this. So as of now, you are not sure that all the occupied areas will return to Ukraine? Not at all what I was saying, because um, what I believe is that the only state in which we will agree for the like this peaceful agreement is only when we will get back to our territory of year 1991 when we got our Crimea back when we got uh, the territories of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk oblast because like even Crimea like mm, Crimea that's like a difficult uh, territory and a difficult topic because During the time with Ukraine, they were like autonomical republic. So they had their own authorities and they were able to do whatever they wanted. Basically, Ukraine were just uh, giving them resources such as energy and water. And now with Russia, they are actually dependent on Russia. And we just want to get back Ukraine, not just to Ukrainians, but to uh, uh, Crimean Tatars if that's the correct name in English, because um, that's their land, which they deserve to have. And I don't think that Russia actually fulfills their need in this land, because uh, that's not the type of Russian politics. They do not um, respect and accept other nationalities on their territories. All that they usually do, they just replace these nationalities from their territory to Sibir <laughs> or, somewhere, or somewhere else just to keep the empire going. Because it's impossible to keep empire going if you're like supporting uh, minorities. Um, so, yeah, so you're still For sure. 100%, 100% believe that Ukraine will regain all its um, territories. But but the, sure. yeah, but um, but having your negativity or um, yeah, what you were talking about in the beginning is um, comes down to more of a personal feeling of um, mm -hmm. like just all the the tragedy tragedy and the yeah all the illness and the the murders and stuff like that. So it, it's it's not that you are not as positive as you were back then about the prospects of Ukraine regaining all their territories, but it's more uh, of uh, having to watch these things every day um, that just um, yeah has a way of uh, setting itself uh, in your uh, mind as well and stuff. Is, is that yeah, um, so more, more the case? Of course, I became more negative maybe for me it's i became more realistic i started to understand more and more because that's actually the state in which we are living right now and um the reason why i'm thinking that the war will going on for longer than we expected is because we will fight until the last piece of our land because that is important that is a really important things which we never understood back there like 
in 2014 we basically were ready to give back, to give uh, Crimea and Donetsk Lugansk, Lugansk Oblast but now we understood how important it is to fight for them and um, it's not that we like abandoned them in 2014 it's just that we had no mm, not enough of uh, power our military sector was not ready for it now they can do much more and uh, the only the only thing that we should agree on is on getting back all of our territories like we do not not uh, we don't need nothing extra we just need our land to be back in the way like you know each ukrainian has like this map of ukraine in his consciousness and on in this map we do have Crimea, we do have Donetsk, Lugansk, Oblast. They are important. They are a part of Ukraine. They are part of the history of Ukraine. And uh, still, there are our people who cannot get back home there because of Russians uh, on this territory. Because, you know. And, um, yeah, the war will take longer, but we will get back everything that we've lost during the past nine years. Yeah, I I 100% believe that as well. And also that it is very important to get back all the territories as of 1991 of Ukraine, both in a moral and a strategical perspective, and both for Ukraine and for the world as a whole as well, I think. Um, so I think we've, we've been talking now for one and a half hour. Um, so I think we should um, try to sort up, uh, wrap it up a bit now. Um, but I still want to like cover one of the last subjects, and and maybe I want to talk. Um, we 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 can always talk another time as well, um, where we can maybe talk more about uh, yeah your own plans for post-war Ukraine because that will also be interesting. But I think here first I would like to ask you. What um, so it is very important that Ukraine regain all its territory and that the war will end in that way. What um, what do you think is the prospects of Ukraine um, when the war ends? I know it may be a bit difficult um, to talk about now because it is um, hypothetical as um, as of where we are now, but um, we are in um, agreement that Ukraine will eventually receive, uh, regain all its territories, so... That is quite interesting, because I believe that territories after the war, after they were, like, destroyed, should uh, rise even in uh, bigger glory. Because I believe that there will be a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, fundraisings, First of all, not only from Ukrainians, but other people to rebuild the uh, cities which were ruined. Um, I think that after the war is finished, when we are we win, uh, we should uh, expect for the economical rise. Because uh, basically people will need to rebuild all of the roads, all of the buildings, so there will be more work for uh, um, more physical work which 
uh, is basically the uh, type of work making like, the biggest amount of people and uh, they will gain money they will be able to pay for products for uh, services and uh, those products and services that will be able to pay for other things and that's just going to be a circle which will lead us to the uh, economical development and to the development of the country we have never been such um like consciousness before the escalation of war so uh i think that the ukraine that we will see after the victory of it that's a um, different country with uh, people who were changed uh radically changed and i believe that this country have a very bright future but again only in case if there will be no state like russian federation but like the uh, um, smaller countries <laughs> there because in case if russian federations keep exist in the uh, um in the way it exists right now i don't believe that there will be many years of peace for us because what we see that they are always going with war and when they are losing like they did in chechnya they are coming back with more power so yeah mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you're saying that um, you think that if a result comes, which is uh, the result that we want, 100% uh, independent Ukraine uh, with the territories of 1991 um, and a Ukraine that is not under Russian threat, you actually have very high hopes for the, the rebuilding of Ukraine and um, for the way that Ukraine will emerge on the other side. And and that a lot of this also comes down to uh, the the change in conscious of Ukrainians so that um, because of everything that has happened, the Ukrainians uh, are now also much, also much more aware of what is needed to be done to create an, a great society, a good country. And, uh, and 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 a political um, society as well that works totally in the benefit of the people and and the, and that this will all be um, like nurtured also by um, the amount of um, help that Ukraine will also get from from outside. I know, for example, that Denmark has a I think it's called like a friendship town, so that um, the Danes will be a part of the rebuilding of Mykolaiv in in Ukraine so so that's like a good example of um, an argument uh, for why Ukraine will uh, maybe emerge even stronger on the other side and i think other countries also have such agreement agreements with with Ukraine but of course um I'm say the flip side of uh, of all this is that it is all based upon Ukraine winning the war in such a way, um, and also maybe even it is also based upon um, a new uh, regime being in power in in Russia, but but that just makes it all the more necessary for us to keep supporting Ukraine 
with the weapons that they need because if we don't give them the weapons that they need it it really doesn't matter with our rebuilding rebuilding plans for Mikolaev and and I think that's also an um, yeah an important point um, to mention um, because sometimes I think politicians in the West uh, we make plans to you know, rebuild Mikolaev and and I think 100% I'm for that and think it's a good idea that we are, are doing it but but sometimes I I think that there is a tendency towards putting more emphasis emphasis on such things than on weapon delivery support and that's because it's more nice to talk about the rebuilding of Mikolaev, the rebuilding of Mariupol and the rebuilding of all these cities. It's 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 for some politicians in the West, it's more easy to talk about rebuilding plans than it is to talk about weapon delivery support. Uh, and I think we should just be aware of the fact that while we can talk about such stuff, the plans that we're talking about and the amb- ambitions we, we have is um, will only come into light if we actually also make sure that Ukraine gets the weaponry support. It needs to be in a situation in which it can inflict the losses um, loss on the Russians, um, which will then enable us to actually start the process of rebuilding these areas, because that all comes down to Russia being being so weakened that it cannot linger, uh, that's why that it cannot any longer pose a, a threat to um, to Ukraine. So I just think that's an an important message as well. Uh, do you have any comments uh, to this uh, point here? Um, of course, uh, I want to agree with you that we need to support uh, Ukraine right now uh, to. Uh, because it's basically the frontier which uh, defends not just uh, itself but also the whole Europe. Because you, I don't know if you are listening to all this uh, propaganda that they are actually having their country, but they are always saying that they are capable to uh, invade as well Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and other countries. And uh, there are some rumors about. Uh, the beginning of invasion uh, on Belarus, which will basically lead to the bigger war. But I think that that's just a topic for the future, and I hope that it will not escalate <laughs> in this way. So yeah, like uh, we need to keep support. And when I say we, I mean both you, uh, like all of the people. Um, uh, who care about the future of the world and uh, also Ukrainians itself because there are like a lot of Ukrainians abroad and we have to keep supporting with uh, money our country we have no right to forget about it uh, because that's our home uh, no matter what happens to it we have to uh, protect it at least with like money at least at least um so yeah i believe that if our 
political partners will keep sending us support and if people will keep supporting uh, not only uh, in material way but also in a mental then that is the scenario which will lead not only Ukraine but the whole world to the victory mm. yeah yeah i think that's a great message and here so we will um, yeah end it now um i will just um like to talk about uh, one thing which is uh, like in the end of most episodes i like to talk about a value or like a saying that i think is um, important to me um, or something that has stood out during the conversation and i think um, in the last thing i spoke about here um, about talking about these rebuilding plans um, before we are actually able to do it will be that, um, I don't know, there's a Danish expression and in, in English it would be that you shouldn't sell the skin before the bear is shut. Does that make sense? So that um, you cannot um, go out and say that, um, yeah, I have a, I have the skin, uh, do you want to buy it? Um, you can only do that after the bear is actually shut And I think um, that saying kind of makes uh, sense um, towards what I was speaking about with um, with the rebuilding uh, plans being uh, put forward and stuff. Um, so I like the rebuilding plans, but I, on the other hand, I don't want the fact that we are promoting these rebuilding plans to be something that takes away focus from other conversations that could have otherwise led us to support Ukraine more with 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 weapons so that that, that would be my um, yeah yeah my last uh, like value promotion or like uh, a thing i want to uh, talk about today so that we should also we should also not sell the skin before the bear is shut in this case but i want to add here that It's fine to talk about what we will do to rebuild McLeod, but I think we should then use it use it in a sense where we hold that ambition of rebuilding McLeod in front of us and say this is where we want to get to. But to get to that place, there is a lot of things that needs to happen before, and one of them is increased weaponry support to to Ukraine. So I think that will be my last message of today. Do you have anything you want to uh, yeah, go out on? Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, that's very good to make this kind of uh, plans, to have the ambition uh, to plan what we will do after the victory, but we should not be delusional about the war and we should keep understanding that the support is still needed even though it seems like Ukraine is in a victorious position but if support will end if we will all start thinking that that's that easy to get the victory then I believe that that's the path to actually lose it and um, being delusional is good but not when it is about war and we have to Keep doing everything we did now, but even with more uh, effort. 
So yeah, that's that's like my message. Believe in, in the best, expect in the worst. You're muted. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good message to go out on. So we will uh, end it there. Thanks for the conversation. And yeah, I look forward to maybe one time speak in the future as well. We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. And I thank you and and the, the whole of Denmark, all the weapons, all the weapons you you are giving to protect freedom. And for F-16s, we agreed it on. Thank you so much.